So without any further ado, I'd like for us to stand. And I always start these kind of lessons with prayer. I actually start about anything with prayer. I feel it is without ado to just go ahead and ask God to move in to the midst of the lesson. Normally, I would ask the person that I was giving this to if you have any needs, but since there are multiple people here tonight and online, what I'd rather do is just ask you to raise your hand and in faith believing, take it to a God that knows your need and pray with me right now in the name of Jesus. So the reason we do this is to just simply invite his presence in to our homes, into this house, and allow him to just convene. So many times we fill up our rooms and houses with things that are not of him, and this is our way of giving it back to him and dedicating our time, our time to him. So good to see you folks coming in. So this is our chance to just pray for just a moment, and I just want you to pray with me, just something simple like this. Lord God, I am thankful for all that you have done in my life. I am thankful, God, for the breath that I breathe. I'm thankful, Lord God, for the clothes that I can wear, for the food that I can eat, for running water and shoes on my feet. God, I am thankful that you are a good God and that you loved us enough to give us your holy word, your love letter unto you, uh, your church, God, unto your people. And I ask, Lord God, that you right now would just envelop this place with your presence, that your spirit would fill not only this place, but the houses of those that are viewing tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And amen. God bless you. You may be seated and the kids can be dismissed. Five and under. Be dismissed back with Sister Smith. One thing I would like those viewing online to do if you watch this completely through to mark yourself complete so I can have a form of attendance and just uh, have a count as to how many lives are touched during this program. Amen. So I'm going to be talking about first and foremost the introduction to the Old Testament and we're going to speak about the different time periods. And as soon as this connection sinks back up, worst case scenario, we'll go on without it. We'll go on without it. The Old Testament covers many thousands of years. It's a great span of time. So in order for us to have an understanding of this time and also see some of the major events a little bit better, what we like to do is actually divide this time into four periods. Some call these dispensations or just ages, but for the sake of this, we'll just call it time periods. The first being innocence. This was when man is made. This is the age of creation onward um, to the man's original sin. So innocence extends from the creation of man to his sin in the Garden of Eden. The length of his time is unknown, or this time, I should say, is unknown. We don't exactly know how long they were in the garden before they fell, um, whether it was months, years, days, or whatever. We know that Adam lived to be 900 and some years, but we don't exactly know even how the count uh, begins, so to speak. So uh, when it comes to the Word of God, we have that as innocence. Next, we have conscience. So this spans the time from the fall of man or the original sin to the time of Abraham. Next, we have the patriarchs. This is the time of the patriarchs that meet, reach from Abraham to Moses. And then our fourth time period that we'll talk about in, this, uh, in the Old Testament, not tonight, I'm not going to keep you all day, but in this grouping is the law and the prophets. 
the time of the law and prophets extends from Moses to Christ. And our first lesson covers the events from creation to the first judgment. So looking at the books of the Old Testament, um, we can see some interesting facts. But the first thing that we need to look at is the fact that it is inspired of God. It is the word of God. And if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn there or just jot it down, it would be found in Second Peter, the book of Second Peter, the very first chapter and verse 21. And I'm going to go ahead and read it. And if you're not there yet, that's okay. Still get there because we'll mention it again. Second Peter 1.21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So we know that not only the Old Testament, but the Word of God is just that, the Word of God. It was inspired by God. Another verse is 2 Timothy 3.16 that says that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And that word well, inspired, it actually means in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, God breathed. So we will see God breathing life into dust to form man. And we see God breathing into man to write his words. We can believe that this is the word of God. That it's not written by the will of men. That, that is that men did not merely decide to write about God. This isn't just some capturing of tribal knowledge or, you know, traditions or uh, legends and it is not mythology this is the god-breathed word of god it's not god's or i'm sorry it's not man's book about god but a phrase i'd like you to capture is this it's god's book to humanity so it's not man's book about god but it's god's book to humanity in second peter um, 121, what we just read, it has that word moved. In the original language, that means to be carried along, such as a ship would be carried over the surface of the sea by the winds blowing its sails. So we see how God is so cool at bringing verses together. He mentions it as being inspired in one part and then talks about moving or breathing upon the people that he chose for this. The Bible is the word of God, so we know it's inspired by God, and it is the word of God. So we should approach our study with great reverence. It's important for us to understand that, as I said before, this is not the word of man. God warned Moses, ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. That verse can be found in Deuteronomy 4.2. A similar command is found in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6, where he says something along the same lines. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee. And thou be found a liar. Just before the close of the Bible, we see that God inspired John to include these words in the book of Revelation. Revelations 22:19 says, And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So we understand it's important to, under, to know that it is the word of God. And by saying it is the word of God, we cannot misconstrue it to fit our own personal, political, or national agenda. That what God says is what God says. His words were meant to be preserved. 
God did not just give His Word to humanity, but He actually promised to preserve it forever so that everyone would have access to His revelation. It says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. That is Psalm 12, verses 6 through 7. On the same subject of the divine preservation of God's word, we see that Jesus said, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than for one tittle of the law to fail. This word tittle is a, a, a bringing up of a letter or a mark in Hebrew language. It was just a small little dot or scribe that would really could change a meaning of something. And for God, he said, I'm not even going to let a small mark go away. And we see his words fulfilled by things such as Dead Sea Scroll uh, recoveries and the fact that I think most every book of the Old Testament, except for Esther and a couple others, possibly maybe just one or two, that they have multiple copies. Some may only have one or two or three, but they've literally found copies to back up what we have as the Old Testament and to know what we teach as history is true, that we're not just making up something. There was a flood. There was an Adam and Eve. There was a garden. There was a snake. There were these things that took place. We, uh, th- I thought this was interesting. This uh, lesson brought out the fact that the Bible is a powerful book and its study can change the whole perspective of a person's life. There's a story, not only in a book, but in history called the Mutiny on the Bounty. And one incident illustrates the, this point. It says the mutineers sank their ship and landed with their native women on a, the lonely island of Picarn, where there were nine white sailors, six natives, ten women, and a girl of 15. One of the sailors knew how to distill alcohol, and finally it all wound up happening that the island became filled with drunkenness and vice. After a time, only one of the sailors was left living, but he was surrounded by the native women and their children. Well, the sailor found a Bible. He just happened to find the Word of God. It's cool how God does that. He can just allow himself to enter into somebody's life at the right time. And he found it in a chest taken from the bounty And he began teaching it. He read it for himself and began teaching it to the people. And as a result, his own life was changed and actually the whole colony was changed. It became a Christian community. In 1808, the United States ship Topaz visited the island and found a thriving, prosperous community without whiskey and without crime. The Bible had totally changed the life of the colony, so, so it has been from age to age. The entrance of thy words giveth light, is how Psalms 119 verse 130 says. So we know that this is the word of God and that his word, hallelujah, is life changing. That it is breath to our beings, to our souls. When it comes to the Old Testament, there's a way to remember if you would like to know how many books are in this book because the Bible is actually a book of books, 66 books altogether. But there's a little trick if I haven't already taught you it. If I have, you probably already remember it because I find it hard to believe that you will forget because of how just mind-shattering this is. You take the word old and the word testament, and you see there are three letters in old, 
There are nine letters in Testament. So you have 39 books in the Old Testament. And then, if you want to know how many are in the New Testament, well, there are three letters in New, and there are nine letters in Testament. And the best way to remember this is when you are taught math, you usually learn, you know, addition, subtraction first, and then you learn a new type of math called multiplication. So now you multiply 3 times 9, and what is the answer? 27. So 39 and 27 give us the books of the Bible. It was penned by around 32 men as the Holy Spirit moved on them. It, sta- it uh, spans a period of 3,600 years at least, and it required around 1,500 years to complete. So I think that is kind of neat because there are a lot of skeptics out there that would say that it was just written to fool people or it was written to bring on this way of thinking. But I find it hard to believe that 32 different authors could gather up their own thoughts and teachings across that many hundreds or thousands of years and say... And this is the end of where we're going. We're leading to a cross. Remember that, guys. <laughs> no, no, just there's too many threads attaching from one book, the old, the old covenant to the new covenant, or what we know as the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's divided in its 39 books into four sections. We see law. This contains five books. History. We have 12 books. Poetry are the five books. And prophecy um, are the next. uh, I'm sorry, 12 books of poetry, five books. I'm sorry, I told you this totally wrong. Law, five. History, 12. (laughs) Poetry, five. (laughs) Prophecy, 17. I started, like, backing up on myself, and I thought I said it wrong. So I was like, I'm going to make sure I get this right not even going to add to the, the number. We see when it comes to the prophecy, we uh, call them major prophets and minor prophets. This deviation is not to lesser the value of one than the other. It just means simply it was a smaller book. So it was a minor book. Isaiah is a little bit bigger than, uh, I think, Habakkuk was one of the minors, if I'm not mistaken. You know, we, we see these chunks as major and these smaller ones as minor. And now we will go to in the beginning God. Yes, it followed along. <laughs> that takes us into creation week. The very first book of the Bible and the very first verse of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Genesis being the beginnings, says it like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The creation account reveals that God made all things in a matter of six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. But I think it's kind of neat that you can sum up what we've already talked about, about believing this word of God. It's either all true or you can't believe it at all. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You either take it as a whole or you leave it because you can't trust it. So when we see this on the first day, or I'm sorry, not the first day, but in the beginning, there was God. In the beginning, God. And then he created Scientists would try to tell you otherwise today that maybe there was something set in motion, but it evolved or went a certain way that you were just an amoeba floating. And their theories tell tales that are crazy to believe that even if you don't believe the Bible, if you look at the Bible and you look at their theories it makes more sense for God because ultimately 
no matter what, something had to happen. <laughs> For there to be a boom, something had to make a boom. For there to be life, something had to give forth life. I'm not opposed to, and I'm, I may get some people disliking if they stop right now. They please hear me out. I'm not opposed to you believing a big bang. Didn't say theory, a big bang. I'm pretty sure when God said, let there be, I don't think it was silent, Brother Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> when God said, let there be light. I just don't see that being a... <laughs> I don't see it being, you know, one of those party whistles from a birthday party. <laughs> you know, I, no, I'm, I'll give them the big bang. I just think that there may have been a big banger behind it. There may have been, uh, there was not a maybe, that there was a creator so in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth for us to believe the rest of the book we have to believe these words that god is real there's another verse that talks about believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him in order to get anywhere in this you have to believe in him if you can capture that, if you can grab hold of that, and you can just hold on, and even if it means Him dragging you through the rest of it, when you get to the end of it, you'll start clicking. You'll start making sense, and you'll see how beautiful a love letter it is. On the first day, God said, let there be light. That's in Genesis 1 and 3. We see that then God divided the light from the darkness and he called the light day and the darkness he called night but at this point earth was still without form and void there just existed a mass of waters what's interesting and i thought i had it on here is in that genesis 1 I want you to see something cool because I think it kind of shows just how amazing God is. Let's see, where are we? God said, let there be light. There was light. God saw the light, that it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. You know what? I'm getting ahead of myself. That's why. We'll get there. We'll get there. I apologize. My brain saw light and I thought stars. Those aren't <laughs> created yet. <laughs> the first day we have light. Then God divides the light from the darkness. Calls the light day, the darkness night. The second day he says, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. God called the firmament heaven. Today we call it a sky. And this is what divided the waters um, into those below it and above it, you know, or under it and above it. It separated. The third day, God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. He called the dry land earth and gathered waters seas on the same day god also said let the earth bring forth grass the herb yielding seed and the fruit yielding fruit after its kind and whose seed is in itself upon the earth this is in verse 11 so we see that on the third day that we we find the appearance of dry land and the gathering of the waters into specific areas and the creation of grass and herbs and the trees on land. This covers in Genesis 1, 9 through 13. The fourth day, and I was trying to skip to, God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, 
And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth. At this moment, God made the sun, the moon, and the stars. He created this time to not only, or he, well, actually, he created time before he made a distinguishing of powers, but now he creates a way to actually keep track of time. And I think it's interesting. Verse 16, it says this, And God made two great lights, the lesser light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. <laughs> so we're talking about he made the sun and he made the moon. And as if it's just a second thought. As if it's just a... And a oh yeah, and by the way, he made the stars. That is something... Wow! <laughs> we still are counting stars that... And also he made them. <laughs> We're still following after and finding galaxies and we can't re reach the edge of his creation and for him it's just and also yeah i did that as well <laughs> on the fifth day we see that god said let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creatures that have life the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven or the sky so we see that the spoken word of god created the, the great whales and every living creature that moves in the water as well as every winged fowl. And then in verse 22, he says this to them, be fruitful and multiply in the earth. And on the fifth day, then God created the fish and the birds. The sixth day, we see the creation of animals and mankind. God says in Genesis 1:24, let the earth bring forth the living creatures after his kind, the cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And then God says, let us make man, in verse 26 that is, man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So we see that God creates man in his own image. He made both male and female. And he says to them, the familiar passage as well, that we just read with the other, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and he goes through this and speaks as to the power that he has given man, the creature that he has made in his image. Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, every tree in which the fruit of the tree yielding fruit, or yielding seed, sorry, to you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. So now we see two important facts to remember, especially in today's time, sadly, but has tried creeping up in different ways throughout humanity. And that is this, that God created man to have dominion over the earth, that yes, you can love animals and love trees, but if you're hungry, it's still okay to eat. You know, if you need wood to keep yourself warm in the winter, you can still, you know, burn a tree if that's what you need to do. And also, he created male and female. That This is another scientific fact that we see ourselves, sadly, never thinking we would ever di dispute but in this, no matter what you put onto it, he said, male and female, I created them. 
He made them in the crea- He made creation in His own image. And then on the seventh day of the week, of creation week, when creation was complete, we see that He rests. And this is interesting because for Him, creation is complete, but His relationship with mankind is just beginning. Now we go into what we call the power of choice. We see that Adam and Eve, as I talked earlier, they're in this time called innocence. The second chapter of Genesis restates the creation of man and woman, and it even gives a few more specific details. But this chapter also reveals that God had planted a garden eastward in Eden where he placed man the garden was a beautiful place I mean, it was paradise on earth growing every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food we see that there was even a river that went out of the eden to garden or to water the garden and into this paradise god put man and he gave him instructions on how to care for it, how to dress and keep the garden. We do see that there was a forbidden tree, though. The Lord had other commandments for Adam. He said to take care of the garden, to dress it, to care for it. But he was not left to his own will. One thing was forbidden of him. God said in verse 2, or sorry, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely, or freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. There is another unusual tree found in this garden, and it was called the tree of life. It was permissible for man to eat of that tree. But he was not to eat of the tree that would give him the knowledge of good and evil. He was in a state of innocence, and eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would awaken his conscience. God literally says, I've given you all these other trees. He doesn't make it sound bad. It doesn't sound like there's only five trees in the whole garden, and then there's this big, beautiful one, that, but you can't have that one, you know. Or it, It's an orchard. It's paradise and he says i've given this all to you you have dominion over it all there's just one thing i ask just of the tree over here just leave that alone that one's off limits but everything else that, that that's yours i've given it to you enjoy it the lord had created adam before eve so he noted that it was not good for man to be alone. And God said, I will make him a helpmeet for him. And the words helpmeet are translated from one Hebrew word that means aid. So when it came to women, God took notice of Adam and said, it's not good for him to be alone. I'm going to give him a headache. I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> he No, really, in all honesty, if you look at this, it's actually a sweet thing. God sees Adam in the garden and says, it's just not right. It's not right for him to be alone. I want to give him something special. And he creates Eve. He allows a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he takes one of Adam's ribs. Men, hold back your jokes about it feels like an arm and a leg. And from the rib, he made women. God brought the woman to Adam and said, this is now bone of, uh, this is, or I'm sorry, he brought the woman to Adam and Adam says in Genesis 2.23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So in their innocence, both Adam and Eve were unashamed, though naked. And they 
walked in this garden. It was pure innocence and love, just as God wanted it to be and would have allowed it to remain. It's an interesting concept to think about. And we see this still today. Like, honestly, if we wanted to do a study in depth, we could take just these first two chapters and divide it into a four-hour session and still not get done on all the different lessons that we're being taught about God. Just this verse alone shows man, so since I made a few jokes, I probably should even it out and tell the truth. This shows man just how he should treat his wife, you know, that a couple is bone of bone, flesh of flesh. We'll see in one point they're called one flesh. They were put together as one and they're not meant to come apart, that they're meant to love each other. She is the helpmeet or the aid and that they live together in love and happiness. But sadly, the world, just as the serpent would like to do, wants to still tear that pattern away as well. Man is given free will. Some have wondered why God placed the forbidden tree in the garden. You know, wouldn't it have been easier to just not allow that in the first place? To just, why not just leave the tree of life? Why give them an opportunity to sin? But the, the question overlooks God's true purpose in creating man. He didn't want man to be a puppet. He doesn't want a robot. He wants love. He created us with the power of choice, of serving Him, or what we call free will. So God's promises are to whosoever will. Would it be possible for God to have joyful fellowship with a being who had no choice in the matter? who in essence was forced into that relationship. Sounds a lot like a slave, not a friend, not a comrade or companion. Definitely doesn't sound like what we'll talk about later on in studies about the bride of Christ and seeing us referred to now as the help meet because we help him, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Give me a few lessons. So it only makes sense that God would put this opportunity, and I wonder if he didn't have a tear when he planted it, when he spoke that one thing into existence. Sorry, it chokes me up thinking about it. A loving God that everything is perfect. His innocent creation is enjoying life and love, but ultimately he knows he has to show Adam this thing before he made Eve, but he had to show them this thing that this is what gives you the choice, in other words. This is what allows you to serve me. But you have all the other trees. You have everything else. Just don't touch that. This was one of the major differences between man and creation. Creation doesn't, doesn't and still doesn't it didn't and doesn't that's why i was trying to mix them both up it don't have a choice nature you know people break stallions and you know people tame even elephants even if it's not in humane ways they may enslave animals if they can't tame them but mankind is given a choice this sets us apart. We consciously decide good or evil. We see the fall of man. This is highlighted in chapter 3. Genesis outlines the terrible mistake that Adam and Eve would make and its tragic consequences. Eve visits the forbidden tree. Evidently, one of the first mistakes that Eve made was to do just that, to visit the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She knew it was forbidden. She knew she didn't 
she wasn't supposed to be around there. But instead of avoiding it altogether, she showed up there. Sounds a little bit like us today with sin, doesn't it? We know there's some things that we shouldn't be around or shouldn't do, or there's some, some things that pull us down or make us not talk right, and we should just stay away. But we still find ourselves in the presence of a tree. She should have stayed away from it. Romans 13, 14 says, Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. We see something similar found in Ephesians 4 and verse 27. Neither give place to the devil. There are a lot of temptations that can be avoided if people just stayed away from sinful environments and compromising situations. Not always do you find yourself, if you're uh, drunk, you know, if you find yourself in the middle of the bar and you're a recovering alcoholic, it's a key sign to say, get out of the garden. Get out of that section of the garden. You know, don't fall for that. If all someone wants to do is talk against one another or the church or whatever, you probably should get away from that tree. Get away from that snake. Nevertheless, Eve, you know, as have multitudes since then, had made the fatal error of knowingly and willingly making provision for temptation. So we see Satan pays a visit likewise. Satan, who is very subtle, was waiting for the perfect opportunity to inject his deceitful influence into the tranquil tranquil setting of the garden. He knew that he had only one possible course of action to do this, and that involved the forbidden tree. This was the one way he could get man to truly slip up. And it's important to notice the first words that Satan says to Eve in, I believe it's Genesis 3.1. Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Satan's first method of attack was to get Eve to question God's word. And it's his attack that he always takes. He tries to get us to question God's word, to second guess in a very sly and crafty way without even actually denying God's word. He attempts, or he tempts, I should say, mankind to question his word. Next, we see the difference in God's perspective and the spin that Satan takes, or the devil's viewpoint, by comparing word for word what each said. God said, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. Satan asked if God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So there is a subtle change in this. And even though it just seems to be a matter of semantics or a play on words, but remember, we're talking about the Word of God, something we don't add or take away from. Every single word is crucial. The phrasing is important, and the perspective is important as well. And we can't overemphasize this. So now we see God speaking from a positive viewpoint. He tells Adam he could freely eat of every tree in the garden except one. But then, as I said earlier, Satan takes this negative viewpoint and focuses on the fact that they could not eat of every tree. He makes what is pretty much unlimited except for one sound limited to one. He brings it in. So we always have to watch for this tactic. He tried to make Eve feel deprived. 
rather than blessed. He wanted to make her think about the little bit that she couldn't have instead of the big bit that she did have. We must always watch for it and watch for how the enemy tries to misconstrue even Scripture to speak a lie into your heart to get you to question whether several things. He, he still does the scare tactic. He'll try to get you to question whether you're at the right church, whether you're with the right spouse, whether you're at the right job, whether you're in the right religion. He'll try to do whatever he can to tear down, separate, and weed out the man or woman of God. Eve's lack of knowledge is shown, though, in God's Word. The next tragic step that we see in this scenario is the fact that Eve didn't really know what God said. Eve's statement sounds very close to what God says, but God, once again, forbids us to add or take away from what He said. Eve added to what God said and said in um, verse 2 and 3, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the, in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it. And then she says, Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Once again, when we compare this statement with what God actually said, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. We compare these and see that she added a section. And it's small. And to us, it's, well, she was just adding power to it. You know, she was just adding some twist. But it was a good twist, right? But no, she shows the fact that she's speaking out of turn. God didn't say you shall not touch it. God didn't say this, but you know, we're not dealing with the word of people here. We're dealing with the word of God. And God's commandment, by adding this one condition, it, in a sense, made her go beyond the word. But also, I'm pretty sure the serpent knew what God had said. So when she adds her own twist... He looks at her and says, ah, so you don't really know what he said exactly, do you? He's now, he, he's already, she's at the door, and the serpent has the door open, saying, come on in. And then it's as if by slipping and saying this, now she's allowing herself to get a foothold to suddenly, before she even realizes it, figuratively, not scripturally I'm not going to add or take away either it's as if there's a tail wrapping around her leg to try to pull her in for us like I said it's just a couple words it's just a little sin right so this winds up showing the enemy that she has a fatal flaw Eve revealed to the serpent that her in her was the ability that that she didn't have the ability to resist this temptation, in a sense. Or she did have the ability. I kind of said that wrong. But it showed in the way she formed this sentence that it was as if she didn't fully have God's Word. A careful study of the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4 will further clarify this, that the only way to resist temptation is by effectively quoting scripture by misquoting the scripture that is why she didn't have the ability to resist that was what I was trying to say we see that as he did with Satan or I'm sorry as Satan did with Jesus Satan will attempt to enhance his, his temptation with his version of God's word he quoted and or sorry he misquoted I should say and he misapplied a verse from Psalm 21, but being the Word made flesh, Jesus caught him in his error and was not trapped. But Satan is still in this business, 
trying to capture people who don't know. If Jesus were not too great to be tempted by Satan, then we have to get the fact that neither are we. We cannot vote the devil out of existence. If he is not around, you know, it seems that certainly someone is doing his work. <laughs> you know, it's as if when he's not in the room, kind of have to walk around and see, all right, well, what's going on in his absence? <laughs> Why is it so quiet? You know, it's like a young man once asked an older man, or, or I'm sorry, let's see, how is this? If Jesus were not too great to be tempted with Satan, neither are we, and we cannot vote the devil out of existence. If he is not around, someone is certainly doing his work. A young man once asked an older man, I suppose you no longer believe in a devil. I certainly do believe in the devil, the older man responded. If I didn't, I would have to believe that I was my own devil. So, you know, we, we have to believe. Satan attacks God's motives as I come towards a close. I'm not going to keep you over. I know we only have eight minutes, but we're going to do this. I'm not going to continue the last page. We see that the next step in the temptation of Eve was an attack on God's motives. Having discovered that she did not really know what God said, Satan now directly contradicts the word of God. Now he has a free-for-all with it because she's not where she should be with him. She shall, what? Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and then ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. So now, Satan causes Eve to think that God prohibited her and Adam from eating from the tree because he's, want, he's keeping something good from you. That's why he don't want you to eat it. You're not going to die. He knows that you'll be like him. That's what the problem is. You should eat it, man. You should just you should try it. Don't be fooled by that. And that's when suddenly she's tempted more. She hasn't walked away yet. Up until this point, she could have still just said, I don't care what you say, just, Adam! We think, like there's a lot of people that believe that Adam was close by because it says that Adam was with her in the garden. We know that he was with her in the garden, but he shows up on the scene pretty quick after the eating and is given and deceived himself. But there are some that wonder if just maybe he knew about the serpent being there the whole time and just for some reason hadn't stopped it. But this we see is another standard tool in the devil's kit. He tries to convince people that it would be to their advantage to do the things forbidden by God. That it's actually God keeping you from what's best. Man, if you get drunk, you'll be numb. You know, if you smoke that, you'll be high. If you do that, you'll be happy. No, don't, no, no, don't, don't think about the overdose. Don't think about the vomiting. Don't think about the sickness. Don't think about this the next day. Don't think about the sorrow. The fact that most of the things that we are forbidden to do are actually depressants anyways and wind up just killing your brain in more ways than one. Now, don't worry about that. Just think about how good it will be. So now we look at Adam. Eve took the next unhappy step down the road to spiritual death. She began to follow her physical desire instead of the word of God. She saw that the tree was good for food. So this is our sight and taste. That it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. So it appealed to her pride. And she ate the fruit and she gave some to Adam and he ate also. What makes all this even more tragic is that while Eve was deceived, Adam was not. He knew exactly what he was doing. First Timothy 2.14 says this. In exploring God's word, we discover the following facts about the fall of man. By one man, Adam, 
sin entered into the world. Death came by one by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, and by one man, Adam's offense, death reigned. Therefore, as by the offense of one, Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. For as by one man, Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners. After Adam and Eve ate the fruit, their eyes were opened. They could clearly see that they were naked, and they tried to cover up their shame by sewing fig leaves together, by making aprons. Clearly their conscience was awakened, and the age of innocence was over. And that's when God comes walking in the garden. God looks for them. He calls out, where are you? But sin had broken their relationship with him. The Lord called, where art thou? In Genesis 3, 9. And Adam responds, I, I, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's Genesis 3, 10. God says, and asks a question, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee thou shouldest not eat? At this juncture, another development occurs. And it's typical of all humanity from this time onward. Adam blamed his sin on someone else. He answers God and he has the audacity to speak these words. The woman whom thou hast given me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. I blame you. I blame her. I just made a mistake. The fallen nature of humanity does not want to take responsibility for sin. That is why repentance is such a major step and the reason it is absolutely necessary. The same tendency is even seen in Eve. God asked her, what is this that thou hast done? And she says, the serpent, he beguiled me and I did eat. We see judgments given to them and there's a curse to the devil, the woman, the land, and the man. I literally have less than two minutes. But the immediate result of man's choice to disobey or to, yeah, the result to disobey rather than obey God was this first judgment of sin. But we see that there were things that happened there are four curses that came from this. The first curse was on the serpent. God said, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above all every beast of the field upon thy belly, shalt thou go, and dust thou shalt eat all the days on the line of your life. Next, we see the curse on the woman in childbearing, but also we see that there's a blessing that through childbirth there will be a joyous childbirth that there would be a man that would come from this but right now man would rule over the woman we would see this now no longer being as co-equal but now he's a slave to the land and she's the helpmeet to keep him going there's a curse on the land so thorns come up there's a curse on man as i said with the sweat on your face, you'll work. Whereas before, you could just take care of the garden and had fun with it. Now, it would be a struggle. Now, you would have thorn and poison ivies. But there would be a promise of this Redeemer. In the midst of all the curses, there was a promise. And God said to the devil, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This was the prediction of the ultimate triumph of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But at this point, 
they're expelled from the garden. God puts angels marking the entryway and keeps them from ever coming back in, and there is separation. As we stand and come to a close, I'm done. I would like for us to pray one last time that we would keep the word of God in our hearts and that we would remember that we too have the same choice as Adam and Eve to follow Christ or to walk away. They were separated from the very presence of God. They were spiritually dead and facing eternal death. But we know that through Christ Jesus, we have the hope of eternal life. So let's praise that. Let's praise Him for that fact. God, I thank You for this word that You have given us tonight, for this lesson, Lord. I ask that You would instill it within our hearts and our minds and that You would use us, God, in Your work. Help us, God, to understand what You say to us, God, and to know that You have given us freedom to worship You that we can resist temptation, that we can resist the devil and he has to flee. And Lord, keep our minds on the fact that you have come, become our salvation, that there is hope. We worship you, God, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. And let the church say, Amen and Amen. God bless you tonight. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.